Well, good morning. I almost left back on that Amtrak train when we started doing calisthenics. <laughs> Just saying. Didn't know what I was getting myself into. I was like, this is the strangest worship experience I've ever had. <laughs> um, so uh, this weekend, I get the opportunity to, uh, to talk with you about uh, what it might mean if we looked at Scripture and Jesus through the lens of an ancient Jewish idea. Um, that seems kind of like that should be obvious, since he was the Jewish Messiah, um, and Jesus is Jewish. Um, but for most of my church experience, uh, that was forgotten. I mean, you don't have to look any further than the stained glass windows in the church that I grew up in, where Jesus, the white man with the blonde flowing locks, right? Uh, but the lamb was actually pretty accurate to its uh, time. Um, so for me, I get to talk to you guys this morning. I love scripture, but that's not always been the case for me. Uh, in fact, before I started to look at scripture through this lens, I found it to be archaic. I found it to be mundane. Uh, I was talking to someone this morning, and they talked about sometimes it can feel like just a checkbox. Uh, and for me, that's really what it was. Um, all of those things. Uh, at one point, I started reading uh, a philosopher named Soren Kierkegaard, um, and he just made all of these huge critiques of the health of the church. Um, but more importantly than just his book was that there was a commentary attached to his writings, and in that commentary, it referenced a rabbi, uh, Abraham Heschel. Uh, who uh, is a contemporary rabbi, um, but his writings reflected much of ancient Jewish thought, and I started reading him, and immediately I started hearing Jesus in so much of the things that he was writing. So this morning, I want to just kind of introduce to you maybe some of the differences that we have between uh, how maybe we read the text on a regular basis, and how the text would have been heard and read and understood to the first listeners. Okay, does that sound okay to you guys? Um, one thing uh, I will let you know, I like to ask questions, and they're not rhetorical. Uh, so oftentimes I forget to mention that, and I ask the first question, and people are like, keep going. Uh, I'm actually, if I ask a question, I'm asking you what your thoughts are. Okay? Uh, second of all, I love to be interrupted, okay? I love for you to say, hey, wait a second. I disagree with you. At that point, I'll ask you to leave. Um, <laughs> no. I, I, I love disagreement. I love for you to push back. Um, just don't be upset if I push back on you then, too. Uh, and there's nothing meant by that other than debating the text and debating concepts of God and faith might be the most important thing we can do. I love that you guys are doing a class. Uh, uh, where is it written? Is that, uh, that you're doing this class, where is it written? And this opportunity to sit around the table with a multiplicity of voices to discuss and wrestle with and look at Scripture um, might be one of the highest things we can participate in our faith. So, um, a little bit about myself. Uh, I, because that's what's important, really, at the end of the day. Um, 
a little bit about myself is I grew up as a pastor's kid, and I grew up in a church that had a very strict concept of Scripture. Like, there was a level of certainty that existed with how to read the Bible, and there was no real, any movement or any uh, way to go with that. Anybody else experience that? Is that, is that a, or am I just completely alone on that one? That's fine. Uh, I just said I was asking questions, expecting responses. <laughs> Okay, thank you. Thank you, that one person in the back. You can stay. Um, and so, in fact, my church, we often refer to it as the frozen chosen, right? Um, because in our, in our setting, if we took a too deep of a breath during church, it was like, whoa, 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 we don't do that here. Like, no holy rollers, okay? Like, calm down. Uh, and so this is the setting that I grew up in where to question God was to lack faith, or to question the scriptures was to lack faith. At one point in my life, I discovered it was actually quite the opposite for me. That to question scripture and to question God was to actually demonstrate a great level of faith that God had the answer. That the text could give me something, give me feedback, and pour into me in some way. Uh, and this is, so this is the setting that I was slowly growing out of. Um, in this, when you begin to question the text, you notice that your friends around you who are really steeped in this, I like it, have you ever been to an amusement park and you're on one of those cars that you get to steer uh, and that if you go like two feet to the left, it's like, and it puts you right back in the center because there's this huge metal rail down the middle. You're not actually driving anywhere. <laughs> it took me a couple years to figure that out, but last summer when I realized it, it, it changed everything for me. Um, but this, this track is kind of how, in a lot of ways, I've experienced faith. Where there's this certain way of thinking about it. There's a certain way. And the destination is unavoidable. I'm getting there one way or the other. And there's going to be these moments in my life where I get jerked back to a straight path. I discovered that there's a long history in our faith and in the faith of Jesus that actually loved to ask questions and derail those cars and take them on their own path and run with them. Now, see, in the setting I grew up in, that was a horrifying idea because, well, you can't just think whatever you want. You can't just question however you want, and there's a danger there. And so that fear kept us on the same track. So this morning, what I want to do is scare you all. No, that's, it is Halloween, though. But... So this morning what I want to do is I want to kind of take you through some of the ways that we can uh, read the text that might be different than the way you've read it, but is more faithful to the people that wrote it. How's that sound? Does that sound all right? Okay. All right, so the first thing is, is the Bible was written by an ancient Eastern people, okay? And that was from the viewpoint, the vantage point in which they wrote. Today you and I, for the most part, are reading it from a modern Western view. So let me give you a quick, so one of the things that has to happen here, I was so excited about having three different sessions, and then I wrote down everything I wanted to tell you guys and talk to you guys about, and then I realized that I'm going to have to crunch a lot. So everything I'm saying are broad strokes, and there's lots of things that need nuance, and there's lots of things that need to be trimmed up a little bit. But just bear with me, 
So I'm going to make some huge generalizations about Western thought and ancient Eastern thought. And you might say, ah, that's not quite right. And I would probably say, I agree with you. Um, so my first broad generalization, Western thought is very surgical. It's very linear. It likes to pick things apart. It likes to have reason and it likes to have order. That is very Western of us. Eastern thought is very much uh, uh, imagination and imagery. And it's all about telling the story and involving us in this story. And so let me give you an example. So a modern Western uh, person, you or I, we would, if we wanted to study a frog, right, we would take the frog, and especially for an eighth grade, and we take that, that sucker right out of the pond, stick it on a corkboard, slit it open, throat to butt, right? I almost said anus, and then that would have been weird. Um, <laughs> throat to butt, right? And then pin it to the corkboard. And this is how we're going to get to know this frog. We're going to become pals. We're going to dissect it. We're going to take out the, uh, the heart, and we're going to learn how many chambers are in the frog's heart. We're going to look at the stomach. We're going to find out what Froggy had for breakfast. Right? We're going to do these things, and we're going to engage the frog, and we're going to learn so much about it. We're going to check the soil on maybe its, is it paws? What would it be? Feet? Legs? I know it's legs, because I've had those. Um, so you would, you would check things, and you'd be able to engage, and you'd be able to see things. Now, an ancient Eastern mind would have said instead, let's go out and sit next to the pond and watch. And now I'm going to see what it ate for breakfast. Uh, I will never know how many chambers are in the frog's heart, so there are some benefits to Western thought, but the ancient Eastern uh, way of thinking would have actually been able to see how it interacted with another frog. It would have got to see how it, what it actually sounded like, not what it might have sounded like. Uh, it would have access to other pieces that you and I, as a Western, dissecting the frog would not. Everyone agree that that was way oversimplified, and no one else in the history of man should ever explain Eastern and Western thought that way. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, so this is kind of how, though, we do with Scripture. When we look at a text, we tend to immediately sit down and dissect it. We tend to uh, you approach it very formally. In fact, we'll actually remove it from the rest of the body of the text... <laughs> in order to check out how many chambers in the heart there are, and miss that it's part of a much larger story. Some, that miss that there's, there's something going on in the background. There's something going on around it uh, that we don't get to engage. So let me give you an example. Um, if you have a text with you, fantastic. If you have a digital text with you, fantastic. Uh, let's look at 1 Samuel. Anybody know what 1 Samuel 17 is a story about? Very good. I like the yes. That was good. In 1 Samuel 17, we have this famous story about David and Goliath. I'm going to read some for you. Not because I don't think you can read it for yourself, but because this is what I'm supposed to do. All right, so 17.1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at, I make up the names of these cities because I have no idea how to pronounce them. Uh, if you do it with confidence, no one knows. Just keep that in mind, okay? Uh, Sukkot, 
See, I didn't say that confidently enough. Dang it. All right, which belongs to Judah and encamped between... Why did I pick this section to start? There's lots of words and names in here that I don't know. All right, so verse 2. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered. That's probably not appropriate after I said not to pick and choose what you're doing here. Um, and Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and the Israel stood, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron, and, shield bearer, and his shield bearer went before him. Now, this entire section, I would encourage you at, at some other time to read through this section. But here's Goliath, this giant person, this entity, right? He walks out. And does anybody know how long uh, the Philistines were challenging Israel in this story? <laughs> that was excellent. So, anybody know what the number is for evil? Okay, that, okay I'm learning the... The pattern of question asking here. All right. So six, right? He was over six cubits tall. His spear weighed 600 shekels, right? We just read that in the text. And so if we're thinking about that from a Western mindset, we say, wow, that's heavy. Right? If we think about that from an ancient Eastern perspective, we're like, there's something about this person. His armor, it says, in some of yours, it might say male, but... It'll say it's made of scales. What do you think in Israel's memory has scales that might also be considered evil? Serpent in the garden, right? And so here's this story beginning of this giant man who has evil dripping from him. He has this armor that represents evil. And he comes out for 40 days and 40 nights challenges Israel in the middle of the wilderness. David shows up. David goes out to confront Goliath. And what does David pick up on his way to this, uh, I'm guessing it was candlelit, nice walk in the park, dinner with Goliath. What does he pick up? Stones. How many? Five. How many does he use? Why does the author tell us five? Ever ask that question? Ever say, what's the point of telling me that there's five stones when David only needs one? I mean, was David lacking confidence to hit Goliath? Okay, so David picks up five stones. In Israel's imagination, what is five? Oh, that's a good guess. It's okay to guess wrong, by the way. What? Uh, what? It is less than six. You're correct. <laughs> can, can you remove him? Um, 
what in the imagination of Israel is five? Yes, no? Torah. Five books of Torah. And where does David accidentally smack Goliath with this? In the forehead. What, according to Deuteronomy 6, is supposed to be on our forehead? Very words of God, Torah. So here, in the wilderness, we have David going out to confront the epitome of evil in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And when confronted with this evil, he takes Torah and puts it where it belongs and defeats evil. Does this sound at all familiar to another passage? All right, let me read for you. Just sit and listen. Listen to me turn pages. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for this is the t- is this, thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented, and when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water. Behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Any guess where that verse comes from? Torah? Yes, the overarching story comes from Matthew. Correct. The thing that Jesus quotes comes from Torah. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourselves down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him again, It is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. You hear it all, the echoes of David and Goliath. Jesus goes out into the wilderness. The epitome of evil, the tempter stands before him, and and tries to defeat the future of Israel, the Messiah of Israel. And Messiah responds by quoting Torah. See, when we read this passage, and we, first of all, any thoughts about that? How's that? What do you guys think about that? Was that, did I convince you? Did I not convince you? What do you think? That's what I was hoping someone would say. (laughs) So my ego needed that. Um, What else? Any other thoughts about this? 
Yeah, absolutely. But I would argue that the authors, the gospel writers, are constantly calling these echoes of the Torah or of the Hebrew text back to us to show in some way that the story of Messiah has always been being told. See that? Now, one thing I want to be careful of, I personally hold a view, and I know this is counter to a lot of people's view, that the gospel writers and the New Testament is calling us to remember the Hebrew text, not that the Hebrew text is pointless until Jesus comes, and now, oh, now I understand what Exodus means. I would argue it's the other direction. We tend to read the Bible backwards. We begin at Revelation to see where we're heading, like find out our destination. Then we read Paul to figure out how we're to get there. Then we read Jesus to make sure it works. And then we read the prophets to prove that Jesus makes it work, that Paul then tells us how to do it so we can get there. And, well, then we don't, we don't, we read the Psalms and then we stop. Um, Yes, please. Yeah, I talked to his tailor before I got here, and um, I I personally don't feel that it needs to be historical. Um, I realize that some of us have grown up in traditions where that is so significant and important. And look, when I meet David in the world to come, and he tells me, Don, I heard you at that camp say you didn't think that that happened. I'm telling you, I knocked him down, right? I'll be okay with it, right? Um, but for me, I don't necessarily, so let me give you an example. I was talking to a group that came up yesterday, and I, I used this example about, about truth. That I think that if, have you guys all heard the story? George Washington said, uh, I cannot tell a lie. I've chopped down that cherry tree. I'm not convinced there was ever a cherry tree, right? But that's not what's important. The important thing is, is that uh, George Washington had a reputation day of being honest and having integrity. And so this is where this story arises from. So I would argue the story is true regardless of whether or not that particular tree was chopped down by George Washington and he admitted to it. Um, that there's, there's truth and truth and historicity aren't always the same. Does that make sense? I feel like sometimes that can be hard to navigate. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that there's room for that. I would also, though, really push on it because I find Luke to be one of the most Hebraic storytellers of all of them. Um, I mean, he does this amazing thing, right? So at the beginning of his gospel, he begins with uh, what, Zechariah, the father of uh, John the Baptist, who goes into the Holy of Holies to light the incense. Not the Holy of Holies, but he goes into the temple to light the incense. And when he comes out, do you know what the job of the priest is to do when they come out from lighting that incense? Sorry for the segue here. Uh, but do you know what the, what the priest is supposed to do when they come out? They're supposed to lift their hand. Anybody recognize that? <laughs> yeah, he was Jewish. Spock was Jewish. <laughs> yeah. So, raises the hands and then professes or pronounces a blessing over Israel. What, is this, what does the text say in Luke? It says, he comes out and he makes signs with his hands. It wasn't ASL. Um, and so he makes signs. No, no one? I thought I'd get one. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate that. Um, it, uh, 
it wasn't that. It was that he made the signs with his hands but could not speak. He couldn't pronounce the blessing. Anybody know how the book of Luke ends? It says, and Jesus raised his hand and said a blessing when he ascended. What? Right? So the blessing that could not be spoken at the beginning of Luke is spoken at the end, which is totally Hebraic to do that, uh, and not very uh, Western or Greek in that story time. So I think you're right. I think, Greek, I think that Luke contains quite a bit of historicity. However, I think he was very influenced by Paul and by the other uh, disciples that he was around uh, and was influenced by this, this Eastern storytelling. He, I think it captured his imagination. There's so many other places in Luke that he also does very similar things. Uh, I know that that probably wasn't helpful, but I had fun telling that story. Um, is that, do you have any other questions? Yeah, I think when we move further into Paul, depending on his audience, he becomes more Greek. Uh, he starts using uh, more uh, dualistic language of body and soul, which is not a Hebrew thought. Like, in Israel's mind, there wasn't a separate body and a separate soul. They were interconnected, hence the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Right? Um, and so, Paul, though, talking to people that would have been influenced by Plato and philosophy of dualism, uh, as we are, speaks to them to kind of help them still process uh, what's going on with, uh, with their changing of their view of who Yahweh and Jesus might be. Are we good? Any questions? I think that's a great question. Um, so if, any, if you didn't hear, the question was, if you question whether or not the, it actually weighed 600 shekels or it was six cubits tall, um, where do we draw the line? Where else do we say, well, this didn't really happen, this, this did happen? Part of it is just genre. Uh, and so if you ever study any kind of literature or anything, there's, there's very specific genres that uh, you can pick up on a lot of poetry, of uh, narrative and stuff. Uh, so genre is one way to kind of tip us off what the intentions of the authors are. The second thing I would just say is Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. Do you know how many nonprofits in the United States are named Good Samaritan? There was not a Good Samaritan. Fictional character. Not a single one of you are doubting the truth of the story of the Good Samaritan. Right? Fictional character, did not exist, right? The man left bloody, almost dead alongside the road, didn't exist. Jesus made that up on the spot, right? Um, and so I would argue that we, we have this ability to read the parables and hold the weight of the truth that's in them and not really even care or even ask the question about whether it was historical, or whether or not it's a story, because the truth is so invasive to us. Um, so I realize that that does make people uncomfortable, and I'm not trying to convince you to abandon all your sensibilities to question whether or not something's historical. But what I would encourage you to do is welcome anyone around the table, regardless of whether they hold something to be historical, or they hold it to be a metaphor or imagery, and sit there and discuss it. And I'd be willing to bet you'll end up with the same conclusion 
about the truth in the story. Um, and so for me, that's what's important. Uh, it also eliminates, in some ways, us having to do theological gym, g- gymnastics in order to make certain passages align where one story, Jesus goes into the city, but in the other exact same story, Jesus is coming out of the city. I honestly don't care if he was in a turnstile and stuck. I've seen people do that. It's crazy, right? Um, and so, but that's, but for me, I don't know that it's, I don't know it's as important as it might feel like it's important um, when you're sitting around the table having that conversation with different views. I think we would probably come to the same conclusions because could Goliath have been six cubits tall and uh, it was intentional that he was six cubits tall and so that does tell the story and that uh, he had a literally 600, of course, I'm okay with that. Um, I just don't think it's necessary for the story to have truth. Yes. I appreciate that. I, I would say um, that I think we face the same dangers with history as God slaughtered thousands of people for apparently no reason. If that's history, uh, we have complications there. Um, whereas if it's a parable, that makes those passages a little bit easier. Um, so I think, I think you're absolutely correct. I think that either way you look at it, you're going to create complications in certain passages the other direction. Um, that is what I think is the beauty of Scripture is that none of us can sit down and hammer through this and have the one correct uh, view on it. I, otherwise, we wouldn't have 500 different sermons on the Good Samaritan um, that look at it from different angles and different perspectives and have different conclusions to the heart of it. Um, so I, I certainly agree with your point, but I also feel like that danger still exists in the other directions of you know, saying that David is a man after God's own heart after he rapes someone and then kills her husband. That's hard for me in a historical setting. So, is that fair? Any other questions or thoughts? These are great questions. Yeah. Pentateuch, yeah. Yeah, I think, I think uh, it's interesting because our reaction to 
uh, enjoying scripture and playing with the text and reading it and it all of a sudden giving us life and engaging us is, wait, is, are we doing something wrong? When are we going to mess this up? Are we going to break the Bible? Um, I hate to tell you, just watch the media for about five minutes. We broke the Bible a long time ago by not playing in the text, by, by treating it so rigidly that there's a simple reading that there's this easy way to just, I sit down and my KJV says this, but my uh, NIV says this, and we then have dueling uh, biblical swords. Um, so I appreciate your question, but I think that that danger is less true uh, if we're steeping everything in the text. It goes to where is it written? Like, can I defend that there is some hint of David in the story of Jesus? Can I defend that, uh, that the genealogy that's right before this wants to tie us to David? Yeah. Um, can I defend that David really began his career uh, in his role of, uh, with Israel in this moment? Yeah. Um, and so I think your question is great, but what I would just say is we just need to make sure that we can steep it in the text and make sure that what we're saying isn't uh, I mean, any sermons that you've heard on the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, um, I would argue, Josh is outside, so if he's taught this, it doesn't matter. Um, I would argue that in many cases, the temptations of Jesus that we hear in sermons, a lot of those aren't built on just using other scriptures. They're built from taking ideas from outside and pulling them into the text, um, and so what's more dangerous, uh, me trying to connect it with other imagery in the scriptures that seems to have a consistency of, of context, or me just saying, I'm going to tell you this really great story in some way connected to the temptation of Jesus. I think, I think our dangers that are concerns, and I'm glad that you have these concerns. I really am, because that, that says something about how significant the text is to you, whether it be historicity or whether it be the danger of, of parable and then what do we do with these lessons or yours of what's too far. Um, those are really good questions. It only becomes, uh, if, that, if, if it becomes fear, and fear keeps us from uh, exploring scripture. Does that make sense? Is that, is that fair to your question? Okay. Any other yeah, please. Yeah, I, I hope that nothing I said would imply the other. Of course. Absolutely. Of course, I am a fan of as many readings of the text from many perspectives as we can, not to reduce the number. I think when we get to the point where we're reducing the way to read the text, that's where we start getting more dangerous. 
not when we say, hey, can we approach this text from the perspective of one of the angels inside the tomb, the empty tomb? Well, I would argue that that passage has nothing to do with the one angel sitting on one end of the uh, empty tomb. But is that a good way to approach the text? Yeah. Yeah, we should definitely do that. What's the emotion of that angel? What's, what's going on in that setting? So I, I'm a fan of, of, I call it playing in the text, and we feel really uncomfortable with that. Because we're like, the scriptures are some serious things, right? And they, it is. Um, but I would also argue part of the reason most of us find it mundane is because we stop playing in it. So let me tell you something real quick. So I have this method of helping children exegete scripture. So this is a good segue to playing in the text, right? And so what I'll do, so I'll use my son as an example. So my son, uh, one day, at the time I think he was five, maybe six, he sat down, he didn't see this coming, and I said, all right, grab your coloring, uh, your crayons, and some paper. And then I read to him the story of Jesus in the boat, asleep, crossing over uh, the sea when the storm arises, right? Pretty good imagery in there, right? And so I, I read it to him. And the first time, he just sits there with the crayons down. The second time, I read to him, I said, now, pick out the colors that you hear in the text. So he picks out some colors. Then the third time I read, I say, start drawing the picture. And the great thing about this is my son is a slow drawer, so he got to hear the text like three more times, right? Uh, anyone have a problem with reading the Bible to your child like eight times over, right? So I'm, I'm reading it to him, and he's finished, and I was like, all right, let me see your picture. And in the picture, the top of the page was like all black, right? There was a storm. It was dark. There was waves really high, and then there was this really, I wouldn't have trusted the boat. Just saying, I wouldn't have got on the boat that was drawn in this picture, okay? I think it was doomed before it ever left shore. So in this boat is two stick figures, um, one Jesus and one an apostle, and I asked where the other apostles were, and my son said, uh, I just couldn't fit them. <laughs> and so, anyhow, so here's the boat. Jesus is asleep, and there's, it was, it was supposed to be Z's, but it was N's coming up from, I don't know if it meant nightmare. I, but, so Jesus is asleep in the boat, but then off to the side is this monster in the water. And there's somebody else in the water with this monster. And I'm like, I thought, okay, counseling, how much does that cost? Right? So I asked my son. I didn't tell him what the story meant. I said, tell me about this picture. And he's like, oh. He's like, it just reminded me of the other story where the guy was asleep in the boat, and he was, he was in the water, and a storm came up, and a giant fish swallowed him. I was like, Jesus is going over to the Gentiles. He's down in the boat. He's asleep. Jesus calms the storm. Jonah technically calmed the storm when he went in the water. Um, I never made that connection. It was amazing that for my son, that just so naturally flowed for him. You know why? Because he could play in the text. Right? I, so you asked about the Noah flood. So the same thing. I did the exact same thing with the Noah flood. I, I read him the story. He picked out colors. He drew a picture. And you could have hung it on any flanagram, and it would have fit in. I was disappointed greatly. There was no monsters. And it was just perfect. It was like the boat, exactly like you see it in all the Sunday school things, perfectly half circle. right? And I asked him, I said, 
said, tell me about the boat. And he's like, oh, well, there's all these animals. And, and was giving me all the Sunday school answers because I realized that he'd never been taught the other story in Sunday school, but he'd been taught Noah. So he had all the answers to Noah, which was disappointing, actually, to me. Right? So I said, so Malcolm, what do you think the floodwaters were for? And he said, to save Noah. What? That is not how I was ever taught that passage. I was taught that passage that it was to discipline the wicked, that it was to wipe out the wicked. My son who loves God, right? My son who thinks God is good and merciful and just says, it was a rescue plan. Right? Is my son right? I, I don't know. But was that beautiful? Yeah, I think so. When I think about playing in the text, I think, I think we need to list what our presuppositions are. I think we need to, to, to say, okay, here's the stuff I bring from Sunday school into my reading of this text. And I need to put that aside. And I need to just listen to the imagery. I just need to play in the text. I need to hear what the text is saying, what the picture is that the author is drawing, right? So think about Jesus. That's it. Just think about Jesus. Um, in the story of the Gospels, you have one Gospel that says that Herod, when he found out about Messiah, he did what? What, did Herod, what was Herod's response to finding out that a Messiah might be being born? Killed a bunch of baby boys. Has that ever happened before in Scripture? A person in charge uh, starts killing baby boys because they feel threatened. Pharaoh. And who is the baby? Right, Moses. By the way, the only two times the word for ark is used in all of Scripture is to refer to Noah's ark and the boat that Moses floated in down the river. It's the only two times it's used. I think there's something to that. Um, so here is Jesus. He's born, and the, one of the first things we learn right, in Matthew uh, is he might be connected to David. And what we hear in the gospel story about Herod killing children is he might be connected to Moses. And then what is Jesus' first miracle in the book of John? He turns water into wine. Have we ever seen, so wine in ancient days represented blood. It was the blood of the grape, right? You exchanged glasses of wine with someone as a promise that uh, it was like a, you know, signing your name in blood type thing, right? Uh, so where else have we seen blood, uh, water turned into blood? Moses, right? Jesus on the cross what happens on the cross? What happens to the sky? It goes black, right? Darkness. What was the ninth plague? Darkness. What was the tenth plague? The death of the firstborn. And Jesus, the firstborn of God, dies on Passover. See, like, if you can't get that imagery from there, that this picture is being drawn for us of how this prophet, greater than Moses, this, this descendant of David who would be king. And I'd be willing to bet that in some way you could find the other seven plagues somewhere in the life of Jesus. It might just not be recorded because, you know, John says if you recorded everything, be, you wouldn't want to read it all, right? But this picture of Jesus is constantly being drawn to connect us to Moses, to connect us to David. All of it because it's saying something to the, the Jewish people about who Jesus is. 
about the power uh, of him, the power of Messiah, the beauty that exists uh, in what he is about to bring in the same way that David did, in the same way that Moses did. Any questions or thoughts? Oh, that one broke you. So for me, you can imagine that as I began to study the text in this way, I started to become excited. I started to find it to be fun, engaging. It started, I, every moment I would get up. So I used to go sit at a Panera uh, when, I, when I lived in Toledo. And I would sit there in Panera and I'd study all day. Uh, they told me they were going to put a placard on the, uh, on the table for me. But what happened is I would end up pacing all around the restaurant because, you know, like the prophets say, it gets in your bones and your bones are ready to burst. And I'd be, I'd be reading the text and I would be like, oh my gosh, I've heard this picture before. I've seen this once before. And I would get up and I'd start just pacing around, right? Which actually kind of scared the other guests. And that's why I don't go to Panera anymore. Um, and in this, so let me tell you a story about before that. So let's back up. It's still in Panera, but it's, it's earlier. Um, before I started to engage the text using uh, some of this method of, of reading and studying and looking for the imagery, I loved apologetics. I mean, I was like, man, I was, I was into it. Partially because I felt like it was something that could engage my intelligence. right? And so I always felt like the church that I had grown up in had thrown out, you know, check your brain at the door. Um, and so I, I was reading all these apologetics books because I thought that that engaged it. So one day I'm at Panera, and I think like any good researcher, you should read every side you can. So I'm sitting there reading The Origins of Life uh, by Darwin, right? And I'm sitting there reading it, and a very well-meaning gentleman comes over, sits down across the table from me, and starts to use apologetics. At which I'm like, this seems like a great opportunity to practice. Um, I then destroy his pseudo-scientific arguments. Scientific arguments. And he tells me I'm going to go to hell. And I say, oh, no, I'm actually a pastor. And he's like, that's even worse. You're going to lead people to hell. <laughs> he may be right on that, but it wasn't because I read Darwin. right? Um, and in that moment, I realized that the, I wasn't, it wasn't engaging me anymore intellectually. It was still telling me exactly what I needed to believe. It just tricked me because it felt more meaty. Now, if you love apologetics, kudos to you. Uh, Panera is just not the place to do it. Um, in this, I, I realized that I went home and actually boxed up all my apologetics books. I was devastated, right? Because I was just so into this. But then I found this way of looking at the text. And let me just tell you something. The number of people that come to our Bible studies at our church that have either no church history or hate the church and love the fact that they can come in and ask whatever question, no matter how heretical, no matter how far out, and I will most likely say, that's a great question. That's making all of you that asked a question, that I said that's a great question, wonder about your question now, right? <laughs> Because it's important for us to give people space. How many of you, raise your hand on this, okay, would say that your theology is in the exact same place today as it was on the day that you professed faith in Messiah? Raise your hand. Wait, so you've all 
changed? How many of you are hoping that 10 years from now, when you finally invite me back to do this again, and I ask this question, how many of you hope that you will say that your theology has remained exactly the same as today? See, that's the beauty. My dad, who's a pastor, his theology is the same. When him and I said, I'm sure there's nuance, excuse me, nuances, don't get me wrong. Um, but for the most part, he's saying the same thing. Because the Bible stopped being significant. The Bible was a checkbox, and I already learned that passage. I'm already good with this section. This parable, I already know the meaning of it. And so we stop reading it. Yes, please. Indeed. Yeah, that's a good question. It really is. Um, <laughs> we always face the danger of uh, buying into what's popular. We always do. Um, and for any of us to think that somehow we've escaped that uh, influence in our life, well, you're just a liar to yourself, mostly. right? Um, none of us can pass through time and not have some of it stick to us, cling to us. And that's why I said earlier when this gentleman over here asked me about what's too far, and my answer was, can you anchor it in the text? See, I believe that, that God works. I believe that the Holy Spirit works. I believe that the Trinity works even if we don't have access to all of Scripture. But when you do, and you don't use it as the anchor in the sea of life, you might not be using your equipment right. So I would just argue that if there's something that you feel is a, a swelling up of the world around your boat of faith, well, I'm taking this metaphor too far, it's going to break apart, like my son's boat, actually. Wow, look at that. I connected. It's fine now. Um, <laughs> I, I really have a running monologue in my head the entire time I'm talking, and sometimes it falls out of my face. I apologize. Um, but sometimes when we notice that swelling up, um, we need to return and say, what, what is my anchor? What is the thing that uh, holds me secure? Because I believe the text is, is so significant. I think that the question, where is it written, and how goes your walk, uh, are, the, are some of the most profound things. It's one of the things that drew me to the ECC, those two questions. So I think for us, we need to say, where is it written? Uh, I think also in that, we have to look and see that, uh, you know, if Jesus showed up in our church, like if he showed up today, he would have no idea what's going on in here. This looks nothing like... Obviously, I would hope he would he'd catch on pretty quick, right? He might ask some really good questions. Um, but, uh, but in that setting, I, he wouldn't recognize what we call worship. Um, and that's okay. And, and we shouldn't be embarrassed about that. Um, that's part of who we are. And he also wouldn't recognize our normal patterns of our day. Um, those would be extremely foreign. I think it's a good question, and I just go back to this. The problem is, and let me just say, this is a huge problem. We don't know what this says. 
at all. You know, I was on a Bible quiz team. Do you guys know what that is? Someone told me there's something called sword drills. Never heard of that. <laughs> well, all right. Um, so like on our Bible quiz, right, we would sit on this thing that had electric current going through it. Is that smart really to do with children? Um, it had electric current going through and we'd sit like this, right? And they'd ask a question and then you'd pop up as fast as you could. And then if you answered the question correctly, your team got a point, right? Um, I would say, though, uh, maybe we, maybe, I was going to say, maybe we should bring that back. It's probably still here, isn't it? Is, does that still exist? Does anyone know? Do those things? It does? Awesome. I, I apologize if I offended you and your teammates. Um, yeah. Um, wow, I just walked you right through that door, didn't I? Um, but I feel like in some ways my experience with that is very similar to what most Christians experiences with the text. I had a task at hand. I had to memorize these six verses, and I had to be able to answer these 40 questions, and I got those down pat, and then that was it. You know, when I talk about this stuff, most of the time, especially when I talk about Jesus, because I love Torah, I mean, I, I love the Torah. I think that the laws in the Hebrew text are beautiful and amazing, and that seems probably very foreign to many of you. Right? And so when I start talking about my love of Torah, people are like, they turn Paul, <laughs> and they start reading Paul to me, and I'm like, but what about Jesus? What does Jesus say? And they're like, uh, no, no, Paul. And I'm like, well, do you know what Jesus says? No, no, Paul. And I'm like, Jesus, God incarnate, Paul, a teacher of Jesus' teaching. But most of us are, we know Paul well. We know Jesus, meh, right? We're like, it's in the gospel somewhere. Which one? I don't know. Does it matter, really, what, what gospel it's in? It might, right? Um, because the audience is different for the different gospels. Right? They, were, they were written with different intentions. Uh, and it goes to that heart that gets plucked out away from the body, and we miss the fullness of the story. Like I was talking about Luke, how it begins with the unspoken blessing and finishes with the spoken blessing. Uh, we, we miss that because we've been taught in so many ways to pluck the text here and there. And so we don't actually know the Bible. Right? I think about Jesus on the road to Emmaus. Right? After the resurrection, he's walking with a group of disciples. And uh, most likely a husband and wife, I would argue, because he goes to their house. Right? Um, and so he's walking with a group of disciples. And they're like, you didn't hear what happened on the road? Or you didn't hear what happened in Jerusalem this weekend? He's like, yeah, I did. Uh, and then he goes on to tell them who he is using what? Only Moses and the prophets. You do that? Can you tell anyone who Jesus is using only Moses and the prophets? Think about how powerful that is. And think about this, right? Here, this is a this is a freebie thrown in. They go in, they sit down, and if it is indeed a husband and wife, they break bread, and what does the text say? And their eyes were opened. Second Adam has a meal, and the people's eyes are open. When the first Adam has a meal that's recorded, their eyes are also open, but something different takes place, right? 
That's powerful. Right? It's no accident, in my opinion, that the author decided to use of all phrases and their eyes were open. All right. So we have 20 minutes. I'm actually going to spend the last 20 minutes, and you might even get out of here a couple minutes early. Um, but I'm going to spend the last 20 minutes explaining to you, well, that sounds daunting, what you're going to do during the, your breakout. Um, it probably will not take 20 minutes, but I want to explain to you what I'd love for you guys to consider. You guys like go all out on equipment. Look at this thing. <laughs> In all fairness, I didn't tell anyone I needed something until like two seconds before I walked up here. All right, so you might not be able to see this from where you are. Um, and that's okay. I would ask for you just uh, come up before your group and maybe jot this down. It'll take you two seconds to replicate it. So I developed a, a process for us to kind of stretch ourselves a little bit and get out of our Western box of reading the scripture and approach it more uh, from imagery uh, and such. So and this is really fantastic. It was an accident, but I thought, man, this is so good. It's, it's actually a cross. Um, it really wasn't intended to be, but it is. All right, so, uh, so this is the process. So in here, you're going to put the passage, which I'm going to tell you what passage all of you are doing. You're all going to use the same passage. Okay? And then in this upper left-hand quadrant, it's for things that are important. So when you're reading the text, what things do you come across in this passage that seem important? And listen, you're in groups. One thing that is not allowed is, no, I don't think that's important. Right? Because anything that somebody says is qualified as important. So whether it be uh, a person, a, a phrase, um, a place, Think about this. Jesus takes his disciples and they walk the equivalent of, not the equivalent of, it is 18 miles. Uh, they walk 18 miles to Caesarea Philippi. Anybody remember what the story is at Caesarea Philippi? What happens? What is, Jesus takes them for an 18-mile hike to ask them one question. What? Who do you say that I am? Right? And Peter says, Messiah. Right? And Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my house. And we say, Peter, it's a pun. He's building it on Peter. Have any of you ever, any, what does he say after that? He said, on you I will build this, build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail. Anybody have any idea what Taurus site is in Caesarea Philippi? Just gave it to you. The gates of hell. You can still go there. You can still go to the gates of Hades. It's in Caesarea Philippi. And on the side, it's a giant rock, by the way. And on the side of this giant rock is all of these, well, a lot of them are empty now because they've either been stolen or fallen down from age, are all of these carvings of pagan gods. And Jesus walks 18 miles with his disciples and standing in Caesarea Philippi says, who do you say I am? And then he says, upon this rock, I will build my church. Anybody say Gentiles? On this rock I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail. Gates were defensive. Jesus is like, we're storming the gates. And it won't prevail. This is powerful. And so for me, to ask the question or to list under important Caesarea Philippi, that's, that's a key. 
right? Can we read that text and, and get anything else out of it? Of course, without knowing what's in Caesarea Philippi. But isn't that good, right? So I would liken it to uh, a woman named Lois Tverberg wrote some books. And uh, in one of the books, she talks about seeing Jesus through the lens of Judaism, ancient Judaism. I, I don't proclaim to know anything about modern Judaism. Uh, but it, through the lens of ancient Judaism is the equivalent. She's like, most Christians stand on the beach. And they look, and the waves are beautiful, and the sun is shining, the clouds are excellent, the seagulls are swooping at your french fries. Um, and people are swimming, and there's great joy, and it's beautiful, and it's rich, and it's good. And she says, but when you learn to see the text also through an ancient Jewish lens, it's like putting on a snorkel and going out in the water and swimming and seeing the coral and seeing all the fish and seeing all the things under the water that are beautiful and rich and good also. And she makes sure to point out, it doesn't diminish the beauty that's on the beach. Boy, isn't it beautiful to snorkel, <laughs> right? Uh, and so I want you to also have that in mind when I'm talking about this, that it is beautiful to read the text in the ways that you have been raised to read the text, but I would argue that in some way this produces an opportunity for snorkeling for each of us, right? All right, so up here is important, and you can put anything. There's no off limits. You could write the entire passage there if you want, right? Uh, so what you think is important. Over here, this is where we get possibly uncomfortable but might even really enjoy it, is imagery and emotions. So what emotion are people demonstrating in the passage? Right, the, this, the text, Jesus wept, that's an easy one, right? Um, but what emotions are going on in the passage? Or maybe even what emotion do you feel when you read the passage? Um, what is the imagery? Is there something kind of significant that's going on here, like 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness is uh, a repeated theme, of, well, 40 and wilderness is repeated over and over in the scriptures. Um, and so this is what that's for, is for this imagery and emotions. Down here in this lower left, I made it, I made it much longer because these are questions you have about the text. In the same way I said nothing is off limits up here, actually there's nothing off limits anywhere, there is not a bad question. Especially when you're in a group, there's not really a bad question. Here's one thing I would say. Asking questions that you know the answer to already is not really a question, right? It's like, how many of you do this? And I know some of you do. You fill out your, your daily to-do list after you've done things so you didn't just cross them off. Yeah, yeah. We all believe that every single person here is absolutely brilliant. You don't have to ask questions you already know the answers to, right? One of the things I always encourage people is ask, what is the next better question? So in this section here, to write down the questions you have about the passage. Now, over here, and I think that this is probably the most fun uh, and most important thing, is where have I seen this before? And it can be a name of a city. Where have I seen the name of this city before? Right? An example of that would be... Uh, Jesus and a couple of his apostles are walking, and they pass through a Samaritan town. And uh, Jesus says, go down and see if they'll be hospitable and let us in. Uh, and they say no. And what do the apostles want to do? Called down fire on it. Why? Because, well, that city had fire called down on it once before from a prophet. You know that? <laughs> right? Like, 
Come on, that's, that's pretty awesome stuff, right? So where else have I seen this? And it could be a city, or it could be uh, a person, maybe someone's reference. It could be imagery. Where else have I seen this imagery before? Um, and this also, where else have I seen this? Uh, back to your question about you know, this being led by the Spirit. You might say, in this specific moment in my life, like, I've seen this story unfold when I was in high school. And so connections are not just limited to the text, though I think that's where uh, you'll find most of them. Um, so that's this. Does anyone have any questions about this other than what passage you're going to get? Okay. Nothing? All right. So I'm going to tell you your passage. I read it earlier. It's the baptism of Jesus just before he goes out to the wilderness. Your passage is Matthew 3. 13 to 17. All right. So I don't want you reading this now. I love board games. I have a collection of like 400. And the one thing you never do is give someone the player aid before you teach the rules because then they stop listening to you and just read the player aid. I don't want you to read the text right now. Um, so wait a moment. So I want to open the floor. We have 10 minutes, 12 minutes till 11. Um, do you have any questions? Yeah, I, have not, I can't answer that one. It's chapter 3, verses 13, uh, Matthew 3, 13 to 17. Yes? Got vomited on is what you're saying. Yes. Correct. Yes. Uh, do you have any specific questions? Because I mean, really, people have done their, you know, their doctoral work on this. Yeah, I, I, I'd be happy. I have a list of books that you would probably not like three-quarters of them because uh, they're boring. Um, but uh, but I, I'd be happy to give a list of books. I'd be happy to talk more if you, if you have more specific questions. Um, you know, I, I would say one of the things, we still have some of this in us today. I mean, it's why we love movies. It's why movies are a billion-dollar industry. We love storytelling. We love things that uh, you can go watch a movie and feel like, oh my gosh, there was so much truth in that, or that really connected with me in a certain way. Uh, so I'm old, um, and uh, one of the things that would happen often uh, throughout the last uh, you know, couple decades of my life, uh, I'd have friends that loved The Simpsons, right? Uh, yeah. And they would quote a fraction of a sentence from The Simpsons, and everyone at the table would be like, ah, and they totally get it, and I'm like, I have no idea what you're talking about. Because just quoting a fraction 
of a story connecting imagery of what's going on in this present moment with a, a bigger story somewhere else, immediately the people that were familiar with the bigger story understood it like that. So we still do some of this in our day-to-day life. Our, I would say when we start reading the scripture and we start having the text more fully uh, and we're able to look at it as this grand narrative um, that we, uh, we start to make these connections just kind of naturally. We start to, to notice these things. Um, so I think we still have a lot of it in us. And I know it's not a direct answer to your question. Um, I'm going to be a politician someday. And, uh, but, but, it's, uh, but we do still have, we, this isn't so outside of our box. Because we still do it all the time. Uh, that's why friends have inside jokes. Right? Because they're, they're giving a snippet that reminds each other of a bigger story. And so we're doing that. And so within Israel's story, within their prophetic imagination, they are constantly alluding back and forth, back and forth to other things. So um, a lot of the, the nuances that we would need to go into for uh, ancient Eastern thought uh, or ancient Jewish thought um, is hours and hours and hours of, of stuff, unless you have a more specific and if I think of something that's a little bit more uh, condensed, I'll, I'll make sure to seek you out and, and talk to you about it. It's actually old perspective. <laughs> Just want to let you know. I was supposed to start with that. Um, I owe you like twenty dollars. You, 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 you brought up my intro and reminded me I should have introed with that. And my last thing for the day is your question, or my last. Yeah, I'm not. I'm coming back later. Um, <laughs> all right. So raise your hand here if you follow the Torah. All right. Let me read something. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you signs and wonders, what did Jesus say? Everyone was coming to see signs and wonders. And the sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass. And if he says, let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you. Now, I'm not saying Jesus taught us to run after other gods, but listen to this next section. Um, For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his Torah and obey his voice. And you shall serve him and hold fast to him. But that prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God 
commanded you to walk. Modern Judaism has a major issue with Christianity because most Christians teach that the Torah is obsolete and is no longer valid. And a Jewish person who knows the text knows Deuteronomy 13 says, if there's ever someone, no matter how good their signs are, no matter how big their wonders are, if there's someone that rises up in your myth and ever tells you to stop following Torah, kill them. I I would argue, uh, in an oversimplified nutshell of Deuteronomy 13, that's that's why. Um, At least modern Ancient Judaism, there was lots of other political issues and conflicts that caused division. But today, in most churches, we teach adamantly anti-Torah. I'm not saying your church does. I'm talking C, capital C, all of churches. We teach anti-Torah. And as long as we're teaching anti-Torah, the other thing is the Messiah was supposed to bring peace. And was supposed to be, the people of Messiah were supposed to be the leaders of peace. You could see why we also might not be very convincing on that one. Um, and so between those two things, I'm surprised any time a Jewish person converts, clearly the Holy Spirit is doing something miraculous in those moments. So, happy. <laughs> wow, why was I going to end with that? That was a terrible way to end this. <laughs> yes, please. I love that statement. (laughs) Yes, it should add to the fun of it. Absolutely. I always tell the people I'm discipling, when you read a passage and 12 of the 13 words are the same, but then this one has six different words, that's an interesting word. We should look at it, right? Because no one could agree with, in fact, I would say when you're studying the text, you should have as many translations in front of you as possible because oftentimes the translators uh, will do some of the work for you. We always have to remember that every translation has an agenda, right? And I'm not saying, and agendas aren't always bad, so I'm not being, like, critical of it. I'm just saying that's the reality. A person comes from a certain background, whether it be a denomination or a faith concept, and so there's always going to be some agenda. Translation is always interpretation. Don't let anyone fool you into thinking that there is any such thing as a translation not having interpretation in it for you. So when you read the text, understand that this collective of people are actually interpreting the passage for you with good meaning and good intentions, I would hope. Yes, Josh. Yes. Correct. Correct. Yeah, I think there's something valid about... Uh, having a hobby, and I'm being a little flippant by saying hobby, but having something that you enjoy that you want to do at times when other people aren't available. Uh, We need to be careful that that doesn't become spiritual masturbation, right? Because that's, at the end of the day, was that really uncomfortable right before lunch? (laughs) 
but um, we need to be careful that that's not what that becomes. And I think that when we study in community, we should always be asking whose voice is missing from the table. Um, we should be always be saying, right, Jesus, the Gospels are to an oppressed people. Yet we proclaim Jesus and we read the Gospels as if he's speaking specifically about us. Not oppressed. It was written to an occupied people that always were under the threat of death. And so we need to make sure that when we study the text, we have other perspectives at the table with us, even if they share most of the, uh, most, a very similar story to us. But the more that we have at the table, the more people are going to notice things in the text, the more that they're going to uh, study the text. Uh, in fact, I'm going to speak a little bit, uh, either tonight or tomorrow, about uh, we have this concept of um, personal savior, Personal faith, right? Think about all the other things you use personal for. And think of, and can you think of any, and you might be able to, I just haven't been able to, that doesn't imply that thing serves you. Personal trainer? Uh, yeah. Personal hygiene, but it still serves you. I'm grateful for it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, personal hygiene is for your benefit uh, and ours. Um, wow, that's good. I'm going to keep that one. What's your, what's your name? Ben? All right, I'm going to quote you. All right. Uh, but personal trainer, uh, all these things, personal assistant, right? Those are all things that are for us. And we use language of personal. Israel's idea of religion was corporate. I think we would really do well, and I think when we study the text corporately, we also just are enriched by having all these people uh, study the text. Yes, I was, someone asked me to do a breakout session for you guys, and I made it up. Uh, I think the goal is, is actually to discuss the text from a different perspective than what you have before. Um, look, at, at our church, I say if you leave Sunday morning, which is all Q and Q, we don't say Q and A, it's question and question. If you don't leave Sunday morning with more questions than you arrived with, then we're doing it wrong in our setting. Right? So I, you're not actually going to solve. This isn't a safe that you're going to crack. Right? This is about uh, awe. Right? When the text says that people stood in awe of God uh, or fear of God, we often think like this. But I would argue it's more like walking up to the edge of the Grand Canyon and looking and just seeing how big it is and how small you are. That's more of what the scriptures mean by awe and fear. Like I would say your heart's probably pounding in that moment, right? Um, and some ranger's probably screaming at you. But... Um, <laughs> But that's the all, and I think that that's what I want you to somewhat uh, see if you can kind of play around with it. Um, does anybody want me to give them a little hint at something? That's good. A hint. You want a hint? <laughs> all right. If you want a hint, when we dismiss, come up, and I will give a hint to a group. The only thing is, here's the deal. If I give you the hint, you can't be like about 10 minutes in and be like, hey, what about that? And everyone's like, Ooh. right? You're not allowed to do that. Okay? You're allowed to say, hey, anybody want to hear the hint? Uh, yes, please. Okay? Uh oh. 
that's putting me on the spot. <laughs> uh, I, so I'm a huge fan of the Socratic method of teaching, uh, where it's questions and it's interactions. Uh, and so I find that in my experience with my son, his love of scripture is very different than many of his friends of similar age who have had everything handed or, or taught very specific ways. Um, because we're the same way, and I think a child is much more malleable uh, in the way they think than we are. Um, but w- when we think about a passage, we're like, I've already heard that. I know this passage. Right? What a ridiculous statement to make. I, I know this passage. Um, and so we, we stop even learning about it. And I, I would say, what, what are the dangers that we might be creating if our children already know what passages mean at the age of six? Um, and wouldn't it be better if they were left in the mystery of the text? I, I realize that can be uncomfortable for people. It's worked well in my household. Um, so I'm not suggesting that everyone should take that on, but, but I think there's great value uh, Socratic process of you know, pedagogical uh, work. So. You guys are making us late, by the way. It wasn't me. <laughs> yeah. I, I, any answer I give you will actually be unsatisfying. Um, I just really am so completely convinced that if we steep ourselves with this on an ongoing basis in community dialogue and discussion and are shaped by the people around us who are members of the faithful and in reading this and engaging this and, and putting it in our bones so they burst, I don't think we need to live and I think the anchors will be, will be clear. Um, I would argue that I have become more faithful in my day-to-day walk since I broke down some of the boxes that I had. Moving from a bounded set of Scripture to a center set of Scripture has been transformational to me. I, th- I don't think there's any coincidence that it was all about shepherds in a well, which is very center set thinking. Of, of people coming together, of being drawn uh, to a center set. Um, so for me, and maybe I'm just naive, I, I don't have the fear. And I'm always reminded because I, I no longer live in that space of like worrying about that until I come into a space where maybe I'm introducing a new idea and those are the first 10 questions I get almost every time and you'd think I'd figure that out by now. Um, because it, it can be scary. But faith is faith, which is the antithesis of certainty, right? I don't have faith that a light's going to turn on when I flip the switch. I'm certain that it will, um, well, except in my house. Um, but so, so I think that there's something about this faith thing, this, this wrestling with and, and willing to be vulnerable uh, that is enriching and beautiful. Um, yeah. Please. Oh, 
Oh, I'm hoping that in some way this convicts you that you don't know where it was before. <laughs> yeah. So I gave you a softball on this passage. And if you want a hint, the hint will open all those doors for you. And you'll be able to already name off a few things pretty quickly. I, I would say that in this scenario, I picked a passage specifically for a group of people that this might be brand new to and that their knowledge of Scripture, uh, specific pieces of Scripture, might be minimal. Um, and I do this with even folks. This passage has even worked with people who have not grown up in the church because they are able to make some connections. So um, I, I realize it is daunting, and um, I'm glad it is, right? Um, sitting there, but... All right, may I I pray with you guys? Lord, I am so grateful for you. Lord, I'm grateful for High Rock. Um, I'm grateful for uh, the great questions and hearts and folks sitting here, Lord. Um, Lord, I pray that in some way as we we engage this passage that... um, that your, your spirit will prompt us, that we will see some things here in the text that um, give us a, a different perspective or maybe just seasons the perspective we already have. Lord, I love you. You're so gracious and kind. I appreciate that your word is so valuable and such an important anchor uh, in our daily walk. Uh, may we be a people of the text. May we be a people that honors you uh, in word and action. In your most precious, holy, beautiful name.